Welcome to another episode of Shades Midweek. This is a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. I am joined by my co-hosts and good friends, Jonathan and Brad, this afternoon. What's up, guys? How's everybody doing? I am hanging in there. I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. Good. How about y'all? We're doing all right. We're making it. I was curious, um, just during this time where we've been spending so much time at home, um, what has been your favorite go-to quarantine lockdown snack at home? Do you guys have one? Favorite snack at home. Favorite snack. Sure. Mm -hmm. I I can go for this. I, uh, I don't, so I love dessert. I don't know if that's obvious from my strapping physique, but uh, <laughs> what do you? <laughs> um, so I don't know about favorite snack, but I will give you my favorite dessert, and it's not restricted to quarantine. It's just it's just my favorite. I'm a big ice cream lover, mm-hmm. and my favorite thing to do is to not get not get cookies and cream ice cream, but to get regular like vanilla ice cream and get like legit Oreos. What kind of vanilla ice cream? I mean, you know, whatever. Bluebell's fine. Homemade Mayfield. vanilla. That kind I mean, of thing. this is important you know, in my I, book. I don't know. Ben and Jerry's. Vanilla. Say, say you're an ice cream lover. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, vanilla ice cream. Okay. And I love to, um, yeah, get legit Oreos, crush them up, mix them in. But then the kicker, you got to put legit peanut butter in there and mix it wow. in. Wow. I'm telling what, you. What kind of peanut butter? I, oh, my God. Peanut butter, Oreo, ice cream. It's the way to go. That's my vote. I'm staying by it. Brad, what's your uh, what's your favorite quarantine snack? So Jordan made homemade from scratch chocolate chip cookies. And yeah. you guys don't have any kids. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> you guys have so much time. So much time. I can't imagine having kids during this season. It sounds terrible. So you're, you're a punk. <laughs> Yes, so we've taken this opportunity to break away from breakaway cookies, if you will, and I've been loving them. I even the other day I eat them for bre- I I eat them I ate them for breakfast. It was good. delicious. You, you it's a good way to start the day. Chocolate yeah. chip cookies for breakfast. Yeah. Cookies for breakfast. Isn't that like a cereal tagline? Cookie crisp. Of course it is. My parents would never let me have. Yeah, cookie my parents crisp. would. No, they wouldn't buy me that. Nope. My favorite. Snack. I had the healthy cereal of cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> My favorite snack has been. We've only made it one time, but I want to make it again. It's hard. You don't want to do it very often because it's not that healthy. But mm. basically, you take uh, a saltine cracker, and then you take uh, Kaneka sausage, which is like Andouille sausage. It's uh, from Alabama. You grill the andouille sausage, and you take uh, palmetto cheese, which is pimento cheese with sole, and it's got jalapeno in it. And then you take a wickle and some spicy brown mustard, and you put all of that on a saltine cracker and just put it in your mouth, and it's amazing. It it's sounds got amazing. It's got savory, sweet, spicy. It's kind of got – it hits all the flavors. It's how, got all the things. How crucial is the mustard? Uh, it just goes on top. Just put a little bit on. Are there. you not a mustard fan, Brad? No. Doesn't do I'm the mustard. Not. Well, you know it's interesting. I wasn't a fan of pimento cheese before I had this, and now I, I mean, I couldn't imagine this this cracker without it. So, I'm gonna be 100 percent honest, and I feel like I'm gonna get judged for this. Mm. 
I don't know what a wickle is. A wickle is a type of pickle. It's from the pickle family. It's like, of the pickle family. Wickle is <laughs> wickle is like the brand. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and they make uh and it's sort of like uh I mean, some I think they do make some they're they're a little hotter than like a normal pickle, like a little spicier and maybe a little tangier. I'm not sure how to describe it. I'm bad with the spicy tangy pickle. Yeah. I don't know, but based off this, I think I think we're gonna start our own cooking podcast. I think that's what's about to unfold right here. Oh, All gosh. right. <laughs> yeah, we probably should move on. We do actually have serious things to we talk about. We actually have something to talk about. Too. All right. So now that we've wasted five minutes of your time, um, Let's get to what we we're discussing today, which we actually, uh, believe it or not, discussed last week. And then um, somebody <laughs> who shall, who shall re- remain anonymous. His initials are John Mark. Um, <laughs> accidentally saved over the files uh, with a different episode. Uh, and therefore, we lost the old episode. So we're going to redo that one right now. We're going to try again. <laughs> Second Conversation take. take two. Um, so two Sundays ago, Jonathan, you uh, started a new series at Shades on Sunday mornings, uh, titled "The Revelation," and it's on the Book of Revelation. And so I was just wondering, why would you do that, <laughs> and how dare you, and who do you think you are? <laughs> great office reference. Those are all. <laughs> Those are all really great questions, too, most of which I don't have answers to. Yeah, no, um, it, it does beg the question why. Uh, Revelation is a, a slightly complicated uh, book. And I think, you know, considering our current world situation, you know, that there's a worldwide pandemic going on, that people might, when I, when I first put out there that we were going to do this, I was like, people are probably going to think that I think the world is ending. And that's why we're about to do this. And and that's really not it, it at all. It's it, I mean, Scripture does have things to say about the state of our world. Revelation does have things to say about the, the state of our world. But it, I think, definitely comes at it from a different angle than what people naturally suspect. And so I, uh, I didn't start into this series because I think the world is ending. But I did because I think the church is in danger of bending the knee to an alternative king. And I think that that is the perennial danger for the church in every generation. I think it was the danger for the church in the first generation and in every generation up until now. We live uh, in a culture that demands we bend the knee to it and call it king. Uh, We live in a world where we are told the pursuit of money, sex, power, and pleasure is the ultimate end-all, be-all of our happiness. Bend the knee to that as king. We live in a world that different um, political uh, sources and powers say our way is the way to the good life and the happy life for all, and you should bend your knee to to us. Whether you're talking culture, money, power, politics, whatever, the church is pressured on all sides to call anything but Jesus king. And I think that that is the very situation into which Revelation speaks poignantly and powerfully. It speaks Mm. to people who are both suffering opposition from the culture that surrounds them because they want to cling to Christ as king. 
and it speaks to people who are struggling with the temptation to give in and go along with that culture, um, with the temptation to give in um, to sin that that culture says is okay. And I think that this is very much where we find our place. And so the message of the book of Revelation is very relevant for us uh, because it aims for us to endure in faithfulness to Christ. Our our normal kind of modus operandi for Sunday mornings is to walk through books of the Bible. So when we finished up Philippians, you know, I mean, when we were coming to the end of that, my natural question was, are we going to head into another book? And I was praying through that. And I, I really felt like the the Spirit was drawing me either towards Daniel or Revelation, which are very similar. You know, we've already seen in our two weeks that Revelation like leans heavy on Daniel all over the place, and it's going to continue to do so. But I ultimately went with this direction just because I felt like that's where the, the, the Lord was leading me, and I felt like it's what spoke into uh, the the situation we find ourselves in most poignantly at this particular moment. Yeah. That's good. Um, I do think Brad, I always think that like anytime we have these podcast conversations, I always feel so affirmed. Because like I, after I finish saying anything, Brad's either like, That's good or that's beautiful or that's awesome. That's normally like, I feel like that's <laughs> that's pretty normal on podcasts. Like anytime know, someone asks a question before the person gives an answer, they have to say like, Yeah, that's a good question. We'll see. Or before you move on <laughs> to the next question, you have to affirm what the person just said. And I wanted to affirm what Jonathan just said, now but I, now I take it back. <laughs> <laughs> See, now I know you're just doing it because it's what's expected. You should just let me believe that you really just felt like it was that that amazing. <laughs> no, nothing that I say on here is genuine or heartfelt <laughs> at all. <laughs> all right, onward. Uh, yes. No, Jonathan, what I was going to ask you is uh, preparing to preach for Revelation, uh, I imagine has been a little stressful uh it's a massive undertaking and so i was wondering what's it been like studying for this book to preach on this book yeah um stressful is a good word for it (laughs) Um, yeah i mean it's it's anything but simple because i mean this is a book that's just got uh, people come at it from a diversity of perspectives Mm -hmm. right um, and one of the things that's particularly challenging is it's so you know anything that you're preaching from scripture has its challenges. But let's let's just take Philippians because that's where we were most recently. When I would sit down to study a passage for Philippians, I might encounter in in the course of a text, a passage that I'd be doing that Sunday, I might encounter one to two issues where people had massive disagreements came at it from different angles and you got to kind of wrestle it out interpretively and in prayer and and try and wrestle with those things when you come to the book of revelation it's like that with every single thing like Mm. like with every symbol every sentence with the the syntax i'll give you for instance this past week at the um near the end of chapter one uh, verse 19 verse 19 where john receives the command again to write you know, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. I read seven different interpretations of that verse. <laughs> and you didn't list all of them in the sermon? No, no, not at all. Um, but but why, like, and, and, and not insignificant different interpretations yeah. of that verse. And so there, there is just 
I don't know, an added layer of complexity because you have to read more than you normally would in order to get just the lay of the land um, and then just kind of wrestle things out uh, longer. And and there's no way that we're going to be able to cover everything like those seven different interpretations of verse 19. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. why we, we do want to provide some avenues for people to be able to ask some questions mm-hmm. uh, and us to attempt answers. Um, and so one of those, we're, we're going to do some Q&A events um, throughout the the series. Uh, our first one will probably be sometime in July. We're working on scheduling that right now. There's obviously a lot of pending factors. Um, but yeah, some, some Q&A events. Uh, and then this podcast, people can email midweek at shadesvalley.org uh, and email questions in and you know, we're not going to do all of our episodes about Revelation as we go through this series, but we will have times and, and pockets of time where we talk about some of the questions we've received and try to give answers to those. So, yeah, it's it's a behemoth <laughs> to, to <laughs> study for, for sure. And uh, and so we want to try to help people walk through it as, as best and as faithfully as we can. Yeah, so one of the things that we thought we would talk about today is the five main approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. I imagine that for many of you out there, when you think about the book of Revelation, you're aware that there are so many interpretive possibilities with the book. And so because of that, it seems so complicated that you think, okay, I just I'm not going to engage with this book because there's so many disagreements. There's so many different opinions. How could it be uh, fruitful? And it can be hard to even know where to begin. And so, uh, Jonathan, a conversation that we've had is about the five main approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation. And I think talking about these can begin to kind of give people a pathway um, through the fog to understand and to understand different approaches and to kind of begin to think through how they want to view the book of Revelation. Yeah, I um, this is the kind of thing that you wish you had time to talk about on a Sunday morning, mm. um, but y- you risk turning a sermon into just a straight up lecture, you know, ab- about the book versus just trying to interpret and preach the book faithfully. And so this uh, this podcast is a good place for us to do something like this, try and get an overarching view, a lay of the land of uh, how different people approach the book. So there are five main interpretive approaches. These aren't all the ways the book has been approached throughout time, but these are the five primary ways. And even within these, like these kind of subdivide, you know, into their own camps. So this is the Good. There's more complexity. <laughs> yeah, there is more complexity. This is just the big picture. So the five views are the preterist, historicist, futurist, idealist, and iterist. All the ists. Um, so let's just let's just take those one at a time. So first, preterist. Uh, so the preterist says that the book of Revelation is actually about events that are in the past. Uh, from our perspective. It says that Revelation is foretelling the fall of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD. So the book's not really about anything future-oriented except, you know, the very end of it, chapters 21 and 22. Um, it's it's all about things that have already 
happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Already been fulfilled. Right. Yeah. 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 And in, in in all honesty, um, even as I described that, that's really what would be called the partial preterist view. A full preterist would actually tell you that the entire book has been fulfilled. There is no coming of Jesus in the future or anything like that at all. We would actually call that uh, a heresy. It lies outside <laughs> of the bounds of orthodoxy. But partial preterists, um, that was a position held within evangelical circles, uh, pretty common in the last century, in the 1950s. And I, I really think that people held it in order to distance themselves from another view that we're going to talk about in a second, and that's the futurist view. This is almost like the mirror image opposite of, of the futurist view. So uh, one adherent, a uh, popular teacher, preacher, um, who died just a few years ago, um, R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was a, yeah. a partial uh, preterist. Uh, I do think that there are some problems uh, with this view, some pretty significant ones. Um, one, I mean, you just you immediately just have to ask the question of relevance. Like, if if this is foretelling, which it, it depends on when you think the book was written as to whether or not you even think it's foretelling the events of 70 AD, because mm-hmm. I'm going to argue that the book was actually written in 95 AD. Um, mm-hmm. So in that case, it's not foretelling anything. It's, yeah. it's talking about all past tense events, if, if this is the correct view. Mm-hmm. But so it's like, why, why is this relevant uh, to us? I mean, other than maybe the as like some historical lessons being contained in it, uh, it loses its relevance as any kind of prophetic uh, mm-hmm. work. Um, an, another problem with this view is that it makes the, the enemy of the book of Revelation becomes apostate Israel. Huh. Why is that? Um, so basically it's saying, you know, Israel, all of this judgment that's being predicted is being predicted against Israel for rejecting its Messiah. Okay. You know, and so all of that destruction that we see is going to happen towards apostate Israel and towards the temple. And toward, and so it's all going to be fulfilled in 70 uh, AD when, when Rome just crushes uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. So and why would you say that's problematic? I, I think it's problematic because I think from a first century perspective that it's pretty obvious that the primary uh, enemy uh, in the book of Revelation, or antagonist, we could say, that sets themselves up against God, is is Rome. Mm. Uh, I think uh, there are some things that are just, uh, that feel unavoidable to me. So like, for instance, uh, when you get to the, the great prostitute that's seated on the seven hills, uh, Rome was built on seven hills. Like, mm. it, everybody in the first century would look at this and go, that, that that's Rome. That's a so symbol. The symbolism is Yeah, yeah, to, that's an yeah. image for Rome. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more of that that we'll see as we go throughout the book. Uh, and and I do think that a lot of these things have more than one fulfillment. Like, I don't think that that means that's all the images point to is just Rome. Okay. Uh, I think there's Romes in every generation. Uh, yeah. But I, I just, I don't think that symbolism can be interpreted to say, oh, that's apostate Israel. I don't think people in the first century would have looked at it uh, that way. Mm. And And then the final problem is that this this schema creates uh, a division between two comings of Christ. And what I mean by that is they have to see in 70 AD there's some kind of secret coming of Christ that's happening there. And yet there is still another future coming of Christ. So you get two comings of Jesus, one secretive in 70 AD and then one uh, uh what we would call his second coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and we call it his second coming because we believe it's the the only 
other one aside from his incarnation the first time. So in other words, not I, the coming two point one. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't think that Scripture lays out two second comings of Christ. I think that's really hard mm. to get from the text, and you got to kind of shoehorn it and and force it. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. I, I think that the consistent teaching of the New Testament is there is one second coming of Christ and that it remains in in the future. Okay. So that's the preterist position. I'll try and speed up on some of these a little bit, uh, especially since the preterist position is not that common today, still held by some, but not that common. Uh, The second one is even less common today, so we'll move through this really fast, and that's the historicist position. The historicist position says that Revelation is a chronological outline of church history from the first century until Christ comes again. So basically, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you are literally reading a timeline of events, and you can you can match them up. You can match up, well, this, you know, chapter 4 and 5 and 6, that was happening in the first century. Chapter mm-hmm. 7 and 8, that was happening at this time period. And the Reformation is in these chapters, and, you know, this is in this chapter and the modern churches in these chapters. So it, it's literally a chronological map of, and, of how history is going to unfold. And then the symbols refer to one specific thing and one specific thing only. Yeah. Yeah. All of the symbolism is tied to one historical event, one historical time period. Um, and, and, and that, so, so this brings up a lot of, there's a lot of problems for this position. Uh, but the main one is that your interpretation of the book depends on knowing where you are in that timeline. Mm. In, in other words, are we in chapter five right now? Or are we in chapter 15? You have to have a bird's eye view of history. Yeah, yeah. And how do you know where you are? And that's going to determine, well, I think all of these symbols are future to us and all of these that are past, well, now I'm going to compare those with past history and that's how I'm going to figure out what represents what. Mm. So your interpretation of the book really depends upon your location in history. So for instance, if you are in the medieval church, who do you think the beast is? Well, Mm. you think the beast is probably the, the Muslim empire. That's the main oppressive power coming against the church, in your opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you make it to the Reformation, well, now who do you think the main oppressive power is coming against You know, uh, what you see as true Christendom? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the Catholic Church, and you think the Antichrist is the Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, who many you are... see some of that rhetoric. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And so your entire interpretation just depends on knowing where you are on that that timeline. Uh, another problem is what you mentioned, Brad, I think uh, that, that under this schema, every symbol can only have one historical referent. I think that that's problematic. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But it and, and, and another problem, and we talked about this the first week we were kind of introing into the book, is that this view assumes that what Revelation is giving us is history in advance. It's almost like somebody, like the vision is like a videotape of history that we get to watch ahead of time. So it's all chronological. It's all playing out on this nice timeline. And I just, I, I don't think that's how apocalyptic literature works. And that, yeah. That's very rarely how any kind of prophecy works. I mean, even when we look at the prophecies about Christ and his coming, uh, his first coming, his, his birth and his death and all of that, those prophecies in the Old Testament one, most of them have more than one historical referent. Most of them are, yes, fulfilled in Christ, but also pointing to other events that happened before Christ. Uh, and they're also not laid out in this nice, neat 
chronological way. I, I don't remember where the first place I read this was, but somebody compared biblical prophecy to me as like seeing uh, a mountain range on the horizon. It's like this 2D picture that hmm. you see. You don't know how far apart different mountains are, how far away they are. It just kind of looks like this flattened picture, you know? Right. And so it very rarely is giving you things in a, in a nice, neat timeline. I don't think Revelation is either. One of the things I mentioned is evidence of that is I believe that we are going to see the second coming of Christ prophesied in the book of Revelation multiple times. Hmm. Um you know, and various chapters throughout. And I think that's because we're going to see the same events or the same time period or the same people um, prophesied about, talked about uh, from different angles. And, uh, and so we're, we're going to get some repetition or the fun theological word for it is recapitulation Mm. uh, in the, in the book of revelation. So the text itself doesn't lend itself to this, uh, smooth, uh, linear chronology. Right. That it w- would be needed for the historicist right. for, view. For sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And the historicist view, uh, it, it was mainly held by um, theologians in the Middle Ages. Honestly, I, I, I don't really know anybody that holds it now. I'm sure... You could probably find somebody in the deep, dark corners of the web. <laughs> like a cult leader or something. <laughs> but I, I don't know anybody that, that holds that view. Yeah. All right, what's behind door number three? Behind door number three is the one that most people in our context are going to be familiar with, and that's the futurist view. Okay. Um, and the futurist view believes that from chapter four and verse one on, Revelation is about events that are still future to us. Like it, okay. it's it's events that are going to happen somewhere out there, um, in in the future. Hence, futurist um, makes sense. Yeah, and, and it, it it assumes that from chapter four on, you're getting a again. It assumes a chronological timeline of future events, and and this is why I said earlier that I think the preterist position is a reaction to this. Uh, this uh, particular view or variations of this particular view. Uh, became very, very popular in our context throughout the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and have continued to dominate kind of the popular landscape of how to view Revelation within the Western American church context. And I think that there were certain scholars that, you know, looked at that and were like, okay, we're not that, and reacted against that. And and that's really where I think a lot of that embrace of the preterist position, which is kind of Mm. the mirror opposite of this. Okay. Came from. Yeah, so where did this futurist view come from? How did it originate? Well, there are different types mm. of the futurist view. Just like we were talking about, this divides into multiple camps, right? Yeah. So there are types of the futurist view that date well back into the uh, early church. But kind of the the most popular form of it that I, I talked about, uh, you know, is expressed in things like the Left Behind novels, um, or the 1972 film, A Thief in the Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so kind of that popular um, rapture, seven-year tribulation with a global one-world government, antichrist, persecution of people who become believers, uh, and then eventual second coming. Uh, uh, kind of that scheme mm-hmm. uh, really came about through a man named John Darby uh, who lived in the 1800s. And... Um, it was picked up by a man named Schofield, 
who put together one of the most popular reference Bibles of all time in North America, the Schofield Reference Bible. Hmm. And that view made it into the notes in the Schofield Reference Bible, which is really one of the key factors in making it become so popular and widespread in the United States over the last, you know, 200 years. Hmm. So, so yeah, so that's kind of how at least that popular conception of the view uh, came about. And I, I do want to say, like, um, there are people I know and love that hold that view, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I respect them and love them very, very deeply. It's not the view that, that I hold, and I'm, obviously I, I don't hold that view because I don't think it's what best accords with Scripture. Um, yeah. Otherwise, I'd hold it. But um, but do want to say in, in all of these different camps, like there are people that I, I I love that that hold these views. Yeah. So, what are some problems that you see with this view? Yeah. Um. I mean, there there's uh, a couple of the things we've already said, uh, kind of come up here again. So, like one, we we could ask the question of relevance. Like if if this is prophesying events that are all future to us, and especially if we embrace the kind of rapture view, which again is a two comings of Christ view. That's another problem with this, mm. you know, uh, and this is where it kind of mirror opposites the, the preterist view, right? You have this secret coming of Christ to rapture mm-hmm. his church. And then you get another second coming, you know, later for kind of the end of all things. Okay. Um, and, and I don't think scripture teaches that kind of two coming scheme. Hmm. Um, but it, if, if it's just about future events, and especially if it's about future events that are going to take place after I and the rest of the church are, are raptured, then what relevance does it have for mm. for me and for my life? Isn't it more kind of like a user guide left behind, for those who are left behind, to use mm. the popular phrase? Yeah. You know, so they can kind of figure out what's going on once they're caught in the middle of of all of that. So so it begs that question of, of relevance. It, it assumes, again, that what Revelation is giving us is chronological history in advance, and mm. I, I don't think that's what the book gives us. Um, and honestly, one of the largest issues f- for me is I think there are too many passages that the first readers of Revelation, which was the first century church, uh, there's too many passages that they would read in light of their own situation uh, and immediately say, these apply now. This is unfolding now. We are experiencing this now. There is a beastly Mm. empire coming now. They come across the sea from the sea, oppressing us now. Uh, There's beasts from the land that support it and command us to worship and bow down to images of it images of the emperor. Emperor worship was all over the place in Asia Minor. Mm. It affects them economically as to whether or not they can, uh, or whether or not they do participate in this. They can experience economic oppression as a result. Like there's just too much of it that they would be reading going, we live this, mm. you know? So this is why you would push back against someone that might look at the symbols and say, John was seeing a tank, but he just didn't know how to describe it. And so he was describing it with the language of his day or... He saw bombs, but he didn't have the language to describe what a bomb was. Right. Someone right. that holds a f- futurist position may say that. Yeah. And it's this kind of a historical right, right, right. reasoning it, that you would give to why it's problematic. Yeah. yeah there, and, and I do want to distinguish there are some futurists 
who would take that view. Yeah. There are other people who would put themselves in a futurist camp who would actually hold to a fairly similar interpretation to what, what I do, but we would still okay. disagree on a lot of these things. Mm. Um, but yeah, there are some who would definitely say that, whereas what I'm going to say is I think, no, the symbols are symbols, and I think that they're drawn overwhelmingly from the Old Testament and, and pretty identifiably so. Mm. You know, um, and and I think it accords with the type of, of visionary experiences we see in some of the Old Testament prophets as well. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so that can kind of take us into view number four. Door number four. Yeah. One thing I was gonna say sure. was uh, out of that viewpoint, one thing that I appreciate is the song "I Wish We'd All Been Ready." Oh, no, <laughs> right, who, right, right, right. Written written by uh, Larry Norman, I think. Uh, Right, that's that was his name, and then DC Talk covered it. I think that song played. Is that Larry Norman? Like, am I getting that in, name right? in the movie I think Thief of the right. Night? I think it was it in I, Thief. Of, I, I think was, it was uh, in that, the soundtrack. That I, would have been the original. I could be wrong. Yeah, Larry but, Norman. But yeah, I mean that that's coming that's coming out of that viewpoint. For, I wish for we'd sure. all been ready. Yep, all I can remember as a teenager hearing that song is, man, I am not ready. Um, and, and I mean, part of the, you know, purpose of when scripture talks about the second coming of Christ is this emphasis of be ready. So mm-hmm. like, it's not that that's like yeah. theologically, right. It's not like not you can just sound. throw it out. The right. 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 All right. For sure. But that yeah. specific viewpoint, I, I, I don't right. think is, yeah. I, I don't think that's what it's talking for sure or maybe Um, the presentation of that view in some camps sure it seems seems to be to what kind of incite fear in an unhealthy way right sure sure yeah yeah. so um so the fourth uh view or main interpretive approach is the idealist view the idealist says that the book of revelation is not about history at all like past present or future as far as with any kind of real historical Mm referent what's it about what it is is it is a pictorial depiction of principles uh, about the war between good and evil Um, so it doesn't have any real actual historical connections to historical events it's all just symbolism it's basically like a a christian history of the world it's kind of like aesop's fables like you know you hear aesop's fables as a kid and it's trying to it's not telling you about an actual event that has occurred or will occur it's just trying to teach you about something that's true and that you should know and incorporate into your life uh, like okay. tell the truth make wise decisions wh- wh- okay. whatever so it 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 says that's what the book of revelation is it's just using these uh parables stories symbols uh to teach generic truths about how we are to live uh in in the world um, as far as like people that adhere to this view, honestly, I, I don't know any within the circles that I run in. Most of the people that adhere to like a really strict idealist view are going to be non-evangelicals. So they're going to fall into more kind of uh, liberal theological circles uh, that, that don't view Scripture as the uh, authoritative word of God. Mm. And, and so... They're going to treat a lot of scripture this way, yeah. you know, but the, the book of Revelation for sure. And again, obviously, I think this view has problems. Um, yeah, I think it completely discounts how the first century readers would have read the book. Uh, I think they would have definitely seen actual reference to things happening in their day, as we've already said. Um, I think that the symbols in the book of Revelation really do 
connect to history and to actual things that have happened and that will happen. Uh, that's something I'm going to talk about in just a second. Is I think that the symbols often have more than one historical referent. We'll talk about that in, mm. in just a second. But the the other big problem of this view is it it denies final final judgment as well. It, uh, mm-hmm. it just completely removes that from the picture and says that's not an actual thing, which tends to be a very large thing mm. in uh, in the Book of Revelation. So, so I've given you kind of those four approaches and told you reasons I, I have issues with all of those. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. obviously, uh, the fifth one and final one here is going to describe more of the way I come at the the okay. Book of Revelation. And so that, this view is called the right view. Is that oh what you? <laughs> I feel like joke. I feel like quoting uh, N.T. Wright uh, right here. I don't remember what book it was that he wrote where he said this. It may have been his commentary on Revelation, <laughs> um, which, which I don't have. But um, <laughs> what he said was uh, 80% of what I have written here is uh, correct. I just don't know which 80%. <laughs> um, and and that's probably stronger than than I'm even willing to say for myself. I don't know if I'm 80% right. Yeah, I feel like I could apply that to everything that I say. Right, right, right. But uh but yeah, so so I come at it from the the iterist uh viewpoint, which a, a better word for it is the eclectic view. It, this actually gets called all sorts of different things. Uh GK Beale who wrote a massive commentary uh on on the book of Revelation. He calls this a redemptive historical form of modified idealism. <laughs> That'll just bless your heart. Yeah, right that, that's going to sell a lot of books. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the eclectic view, and, and the reason I call it the eclectic view is because it, it kind of takes um, what I think are, are, are the best things, really, from each of the other other views. So let, let okay. me just back up and just say this. So the iterist view, the eclectic view, it, it says the book of Revelation deals with issues that are contemporary with John in the first century, and it deals with issues in the future. Uh, it, it says the book of Revelation is speaking about the entire block of time that we would call the last days. Uh, the last days, biblically speaking, are, are not days future to us right at the very end of time before Jesus comes back. The way the New Testament talks about the last days is that is the time period from Christ's ascension until he comes again. Hmm. That's the last days, or we could call it the inter-advent period, so the period between his advents, between his comings, or some people will call it the church age. All of those are, are the same thing. And the Iter's view says that's what the book of Revelation is about. It is about that entire block of time. So that's speaking to the early church and that's speaking to us today. We're both in the last days. Yes, and this isn't like the historicist view. I'll distinguish it from that. It's not saying that Revelation is history in advance laying out kind of how everything's going to happen from the first century until Jesus comes back. No, it's different than that. What what this view does is it says first and foremost, the entire book of Revelation has got to be studied against the background of the first century. Hmm. But those things become a prefigurement of things to come. So it it prepares the first generation reading it for first generation assaults, and it prepares later generations reading it for later generation assaults, all the way until the final assault. So, so it's saying, hmm. like, the whole book applies to every 
generation. It th- th- this is where we need to talk about how the symbols have multiple historical applications. Uh, the symbols are characteristic of the last days. They happen over and over again throughout the last days. Uh, you, you could say like this, the symbols are transtemporal. Uh, they're characteristic or representative of life in the inner advent period. So for instance, hmm. when those first century readers are reading about the beast from the sea, they're going to say, that's the Roman imperial power. And, and I, when we get there, I'll hopefully be able to draw out and show why they would think that. Mm. But they're going to say that's the Roman imperial power. Whereas later generations are going to go, we still have beastly powers, beastly empires that set themselves up against God's people. We still have Rome's, if you will, in our day. Mm. Rome may be the beast for that first century, but it's a prefigurement of beastly powers to come. Okay. Um, And so, you know, Babylon it becomes an image. Babylon, the great city, becomes an, an image of, of worldly indulgence. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, which the first readers would have related to the Roman Empire. But we can talk about how Babylon is present in every generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these these symbols become prefigurements for here's what's going to characterize life in the church age for every generation of the church. And therefore, it, it all becomes helpful for discipling us as to what our calling is in every generation of the church. This this really is the critical marker of the iterist view, that it sees that symbols have multiple historical applications. So we're not we're not doing the idealist thing where we're saying they're just symbols mm. and they just teach us general lessons, they have no historical reference. We're saying no, they have they have multiple historical reference. And like I said earlier, yeah. we see this even with Old Testament prophecies. They get applied to Christ. So think about in Matthew, when Jesus, uh, after Jesus is born and his parents flee from the wrath of Herod to to Egypt, when they come back to Israel, Matthew says that this fulfills the words of the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, if you go back to those words in their original prophetic context, they're about a completely different historical event. Mm. You know, but Matthew sees these words have more than one historical reference. Hmm. Uh, and I think that we see the same thing happening uh, in, in the book of Revelation. So so this is the eclectic view because it's a combination of the strengths of the other four views. So from the, from the preterist view, uh, we don't say this is only about past events, but we do say it does apply to that first century church. It does need to be interpreted in their context. From the historicist view, we say this applies to every generation of the church. No, it's not a chronological timeline that we can kind of trace out, but it's relevant for every generation. Mm. Uh, From the futurist view, we say, yeah, it covers that time period too. It covers future generations of Christians all the way up until Christ comes again. And from the idealist view, we say, yeah, the symbols do teach us principles to be important to be applied in our lives. They do teach us how to live in this period, but they're not without historical referent. Hmm. They do actually show us things that are unfolding and going to continue to unfold until Christ uh, return. There are are quite a few adherents to this view. I mentioned G.K. Beale and his commentary earlier. He adheres to this view. I disagree with Beale often (laughs) in his commentary. Um, but uh, uh, the, the Frank Thielman is a New Testament professor 
uh, at Beeson Divinity School, and he was actually the first, uh, sitting in his New Testament class, was the first time I ever heard a position other than my own uh, that I'd kind of grown up in, which was definitely a futurist position. Um, it was the first time I'd ever heard something else articulated, and he would definitely fall into this camp, even though I also have disagreements with him about various and sundry things. Uh, this is not just a recent view. You can find it throughout church history, uh, even if it doesn't get the label or the name. So, for instance, St. Augustine, when you read what he had to say about the second coming of Christ, uh, it, it very much sounds uh, akin to what we're talking about with this eclectic view, and you can find it in other places as well. Hmm. But, but those are kind of the primary five overarching approaches to the book of Revelation. You can see very quickly why people would come to very different conclusions yeah. you know, about what this book is about when, when they come with that framework. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who's going, well, how in the world do I su- decide yeah. between these things? I think the question that you have, first of all, pray. <laughs> um, get on your knees before the Lord. Uh, but second of all, I think that you've got to approach the book of Revelation the the same way that we approach interpreting the rest of Scripture, in that you have to say, what did this first mean to the people who received it? I need to ask that question first before I start trying to apply it to me. Hmm. How would that first century church have received this? What does this mean in light of the rest of scriptures of the scriptures? I got to ask that before I ask about what does this mean in light of current events. So all of these symbols, like what do they mean in light of their Old Testament references? Mm. And then as I begin to ask those questions, I think will emerge the approach that's most consistent uh, with with the scriptures. However, the last thing I would say is that because this is an area that Christians have disagreed about uh, for a long time, we, we do need to hold our positions uh, with open hands um, and and hold to what is absolutely core and essential uh, in in our view of the second coming. Yeah, there are certain perspectives that are definitely outside the bounds of orthodoxy, uh, but when it comes to varying viewpoints within the bounds of orthodoxy, uh, we need to hold those things with open hands and, and just try to agree on the essentials. And I think those essentials, in the simplest way I can state it, uh, would boil down to the book of Revelation calls the church to live faithfully uh, in witness of Jesus Christ no matter what uh, until he comes again and he will be faithful and we will overcome and conquer with him. Mm. Amen. I didn't want to say good because you might <laughs> think that I'm not being genuine. And so I said amen because I meant it. Jonathan, thank you so much. That was so helpful. And I hope for all of you that are listening, it has given a little bit of clarity in the midst of all the confusion. I'm sure you have tons of questions. Please send us your questions. We want to hear from you. So please send us your questions. Uh, Send it to midweek at shadesvalley.org. And hopefully we can address some of your questions throughout the series on this podcast. Yeah, I, I look forward to next episode simply just asking the questions to Brad. We'll see if that happens or not. 
So come back and visit us next week. This has been another episode of 